Tell somebody, God is in the house. Oh, there's some great worship going on here today. I want to extend my own uh, words of gratitude to Sister Alicia. Uh, come on, give God a hand. And the team, the praise team, the worship team. Well, the women here know that uh, over the weekend you had an amazing treat uh, from the person of the Reverend Dr. Gloria Hammond, who was just extraordinary all the way through till last night at 430. We had originally planned that the uh, worship service component would be done by them team teaching uh, Dr. Gloria Whiteham and her husband, Dr. Ray Hammond. Uh, but the Lord led them a little different, and so she finished up the women's conference herself last night at 4.30. If you were not here, I just want to tell you, please, get the DVD. Uh, we're going to also put it up online. You don't want to miss that word that she brought. It was an amazing word last night about what does it mean to be in a watershed moment and making the right choices. And so you want to definitely get that. Rhonda and I have been blessed this weekend because we've had two of our just closest friends on the planet here with us from Boston. So let's give God a hand praise for Dr. Gloria White Hammond and her ministry. So let me tell you a little bit about Pastor Ray Hammond, Dr. Ray Hammond. Uh, he is the father of two beautiful and brilliant daughters and a beautiful and brilliant granddaughter. He is the husband of... Gloria, for 40 years, they've been married for 40 years. Celebrate that. Praise God. Uh, his journey actually starts in Philadelphia. He grew up in a gang-infested community in Philly. Poor schools. And yet God did something amazing with his life. At 15 years old, he was accepted into Harvard University. And he majored in... Get this, Hebrew and Arabic. Graduated from Harvard University, went on to Harvard Medical School, became a surgeon uh, that uh, was connected to the emergency room and performed all these crisis surgeries in his early career. And then the Lord spoke to him. And, you know, as a surgeon, he's making all kind of money, just having a great day time. And the Lord spoke to him and said, set that down. I'm going to call you to preach and to pastor. So he went from making lots of money to little money. <laughs> that shows what a man of God he is, right? <laughs> Do I say anything else? All right. <laughs> but took five people, basically his family and one or two others, and started a small church really in his backyard called Bethel AME. And the Lord has blessed that congregation to become one of the most impactful congregations, not just in Massachusetts, but literally on two continents. And then the Lord would raise him up to be a great preacher. And you'll get that experience. He uh, was in India uh, about a month or so ago. He's going to be in Africa. He's going straight from here to Africa, to the continent of Africa. And uh, he's a great preacher. But I really know him in the context of his prophetic role uh, that uh, throughout Boston, Massachusetts governors and mayors and corporate leaders, when they really want to know what thus says the Lord around issues of justice and fairness, 
The one preacher that they will call on and listen to, not because he's a preacher politician, but because he's just a prophetic voice for God, is Pastor Ray Hammond. And I was so blessed because his last name is Hammond, mine's is Hamilton. He is clean shaving, I'm clean shaven. And, and so, you know, a major power broker. So when I got into, into Boston and I'd call some place or show up, and, uh, you know, I'd say Pastor Hamilton, but they'd hear Pastor Hammond, and all these doors would open for me all the time. This is really great. <laughs> so thank you, Ray. I'm so grateful. That's, that's just tremendous. <laughs> so I'm going to introduce to you guys truly a uh, remarkable preacher and pastor, but really, for me, just a dear friend. We preach together. We built organizations together. Black Ministerial Alliance. He built the Ten Point Coalition, which you'll hear about in this message, an organization that has fought to stop uh, violence. We work together to bring near universal health care to Massachusetts. In my greatest crisis as a pastor in Boston, a young man got killed in my congregation who I was close to. At six in the morning, I called Ray because I was shaking in my church after attending to the family. And he came. And so we've been there for one another for 20 years. So ALCF, to this congregation that I love, I introduce to you one of my dearest friends who I love, Ray Hammond. Come preach the gospel. Let the people of God say amen. amen. Would you join with me in just a word of prayer? Would you join hands with one another as we enter into this corporate moment of uh, listening for the voice of God? God, we just want to bless and thank you for the privilege of being here. We know, God, that it's not because of us, but because of you. It's in you that we live. It's in you that we move and have our being. It was your finger of love that woke us up this morning. It was your grace that started us on our way. It was your water that quenched our thirst, your food, God, that filled our hunger. You, Lord, are our source. And for that, we are deeply grateful. And we are reminded, Lord, as we sit in this place, that we don't live by bread alone. But we need the words that pour forth from the very mouth of God. And that's what we're here for. I pray, God, that you would speak so that your people might hear and be blessed. We pray, God, that you would speak so that we might, Lord, be encouraged and corrected and inspired and challenged. Speak, Lord, because your servants are listening. And we want in all of this above everything, God, for your kingdom to come, for your will to be done, for your purposes to be served, for your kingdom to be advanced in the name of Jesus. Let the people of God say together, amen. amen. It is such a blessing to, amen. It's such a blessing to be here with you. Uh, we have been looking forward to this for months. Uh, it's been so exciting uh, just to come back. Uh, I didn't get uh, neglected to say it this morning, but certainly want to say it now. Uh, my wife shared it, I think, and many of the women perhaps have heard it, but not all of you. 
that this was the congregation that really ministered to our daughter when she was a student in Stanford from 1997 to 2001. And whenever we would come to visit her, and I'd come two or three times a year, I would uh, come and worship here. Uh, at the time, she had a habit of being a little bit late, so most of the time I was sitting in the overflow area. But, um, but we loved coming over to uh, ALCF, and I just want to thank you for being her family away from home, for uh, nurturing her spiritually, allowing her parents to know that... Uh, that there was a family taking care of their daughter on the other side of the country. God bless you, and we really do thank you for that. also want to take the opportunity to just thank Sister Alicia, who has been phenomenal all weekend long. We've just been blessed by worship and worship, and, and so grateful to her for really setting the table and establishing the atmosphere of praise Along with this phenomenal praise team, they are just great. They're, fun, they're really excellent. Uh, I've been uh, tweeting and uh, sending notes back to my um, uh, minister of music because I hear a song and I say, ah, oh, we got to learn that one. So I, I send it back. Finally, he said, well, is the team great? How, how good is that team? I said, they're great, but not as great as the team back at Bethel. Uh, I also want to take the opportunity to thank all of the ALCL staff who have, who have just played a phenomenal role in getting us set up and taking care of the logistics who treated us royally with great hospitality. You've got a f just excellent group of people here um, as uh, ministers, as administrative people, and they've really demonstrated that to us. And, of course, to our friends uh, Rhonda and Herman. To Rhonda, uh, I, you know, I, I walked in the office, I saw this big poster with Rhonda, just arms lifted up. I said, my Lord, she came out here and just blossomed. I was just amazing to see the way in which she's come into her own and the phenomenal ministry that God is doing through her. And, of course, to my good friend uh, Herman. We have been through some battles together. He outlined a few of them there, a whole bunch of them. Um, but through it all, just the blessing of having a brother you could count on, who you know would get you back, uh, who would do the right thing. Oh, glory to God. I just thank God for people who will do the right thing. Um, so we miss them. We miss them, miss them, miss them mightily. Uh, but as I say to my congregation all the time, none of us belong to any of us. We belong to Jesus. And when Jesus says, you got to go, you got to go. So we are thankful that uh, they are ministering here and that you've made a place and home for them here uh, on the West Coast and really excited about what God's doing in your midst. Last but not least, I just want to say thank you to my wife who just came back in. Uh, we have, uh, she's been uh, walking around trying to learn about some of the great things you're doing in children and youth ministry. We're always trying to learn wherever we go. Um, but this is my friend, my best friend, my partner. Uh, we've been at this for about uh, 40 years now. Uh, we've been through all kinds of stuff together, and it is just s such a blessing to me to know that after 40 years, it really is a whole lot sweeter. It's a whole lot more exciting. It's a lot more sexy now than it was at the beginning. Amen. 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 You know, when you got started, you know, you were just, you know, reacting to what you could kind of see. But now it's about what we've been through together. Amen. I mean, the memories, the, the challenges, the things we've overcome together. Uh, 
And uh, I'm just so grateful to have her as my wife and as my co-pastor and as my friend, Gloria. Well, let's look at the word and we do for, uh, for that purpose. We're going to look at the fifth ch- uh, chapter of the book of Luke. Would you turn there? And I'm going to read verses one through eleven as we stand together just in reverence and, and respect for the word of God. Um, would you hear these words written by uh, Luke, the physician? One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret with the people crowding around him and listening to the word of God, he saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and he asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we worked hard all night and haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. And then going down to verse 10, then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything and followed him. And I want you to just consider with me a subject that I'd like you to just repeat into the hearing of your neighbors. If you just turn to your neighbor next door to him and say, because you say so. And turn to that neighbor behind you and just so that they'll kind of get it fixed uh, into the portals of their brain. Would you just say, because you say so. As you return to your seats, I remind you that uh, it is a a game that all parents are are very much used to. It's what I call the communication dance, uh, the why game. And I'm getting to do it now for the second round because of my seven-year-old granddaughter who I just love deeply. Uh, She reminds me of the truth of that old saying by Bill Cosby, the grandchildren are God's reward for not killing your kids. So now as she's a young child, we have to go through this thing of why. And at that age, indeed, why really is a statement of intellectual curiosity. Why is a way of saying, I I don't quite get it. I don't quite see why these things relate to each other have to be done in that way. But we all know that as time goes by, that crosses into another realm in which why becomes as much about questioning and then even about defiance. Why do I have to do this? Why do I have to do it now? Why do I have to do it this way? Why, why, why? Now, like many of you, I came and was brought up under the old school of discipline. And the best of old school parents. I mean the best. I'm not talking about those who just told you to sit up and shut down. If I want your opinion, I'll give it to you. I'm talking about the best of old school parents would take the time to explain why they were asking you to do something. Uh, They were really willing to talk about it and to get your point of view on the matter. But when there came a time that a decision had to be made and something had to be done, if by that time you still didn't understand why you had to do a certain thing, their answer would simply be, you got it. 
It's in a similar situation that we find Jesus and his disciples in the early days of his ministry. And what we have read today in this pericope of scripture really comes before the calling of his disciples. It comes in the context of people knowing that there is something different and extraordinary about the ministry of Jesus. They've caught on to the fact that this guy from Nazareth, that place that nobody wants to be from, has something different about him. You read a little bit of this in the fourth chapter of Luke, verse 32, for it states there the people were amazed at his teaching because his message had authority. The people were amazed and said to each other, what is this teaching with authority and power? He gives orders to evil spirits and they come out. Because his ministry was so different and so powerful, they came in droves, pressing their way to hear this forceful voice speak and command. Because he taught with such authority, they came in droves, anxious to hear from God and see the power of God manifest. They came with such insistence that Jesus eventually had to move out beyond the shore in order to teach the people, men and women, girls and boys, from near and far, hanging on every word, attentive to every movement of this man called Jesus. Can you imagine that scene? Because over here, there's rejoicing the family of a man formerly possessed of a demon, now clothed in his right mind and doing the right thing for the first time, perhaps in years. Can you see the folks over there gathered around the disabled who can now walk, the mute who can now talk, the blind who can now see, and even despised tax collectors and prostitutes who have been brought in from the cold and given a new lease on life by a man called Jesus. But Luke turns our attention in these verses to a more intimate scene that takes place not during the church service, not in the public eye, but in the private space of a boat owned by Peter, James, and John. Because after the public ministry is done, Jesus bids them move out of the shallow places and into the deeper waters. There, there, there's a message for the church there. Oh, I love the shout. I, I, I love the song. I love the uplifted hands. I love the, I love the run. I love uh, uh, the, the, the joy that floods over my soul. But after the public ministry is done, then the deep water stuff comes. The deep water's outside those doors. The deep water's waiting for you at your job tomorrow. The deep water's in your classroom. The deep water's in your household. The deep water's in your family. The deep water is in your neighborhood. That's where the deep water is. Jesus reminds us after we've been in the public ministry, it's time to move out into the deep waters. In those deep waters, something interesting happens because... The ones who have been fishing all their lives suddenly find themselves at an amazingly frustrating point. And then they hear this word from Jesus telling them to cast their nets yet again. Now, you've got to understand exactly what's taking place here, because now, from the vantage point of just reading the scriptures as we have and hearing the story over and over again, we lose sight of the fact that here it's happening for the first time. And I want you to remind yourself that Jesus, a carpenter and preacher, is telling Peter, a fisherman, what he ought to do when it comes to fishing. 
Jesus tells Peter and his boys to let down their nets. To which Peter replies, and I am reading between the lines, but I know it's true. I know it's true. What he's really saying is, Jesus, you were trained as a carpenter and you're a pretty good preacher, but I know all about fishing. I've done it all my life. It's my bread and butter. It's what I do all day long. I live beside this sea. I've worked this water to the point that I know every nook and cranny, every cove and hollow. And James and John and I have been out here all night without catching a single fish. But because you say so, I'll do it. Because you say so, I'll do it. You are hearing here in the words of Peter the substance of what I call real faith. Real faith. The kind of faith that pleases God. The kind of faith talked about in Hebrews chapter 1 when it declares, uh, Hebrews chapter 11, excuse me. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And, And I commend this to you because as I've been looking over the words that Pastor Gloria has been preaching uh, about really pressing through and overcoming the bullies of disgrace and fear and, and, and moving aside the butts in our lives. As I, as I look at the list of things that Pastor Hamilton has been teaching over these past few weeks about claiming your birthright and making big changes and working through loss, I know that the biggest uh, the problem, the biggest threat to these things coming to pass is not that they are hard, is not that they are challenging, is not that they will require great faith, but because they will be easily seen by so many many as something I've already heard. It's something that applies to somebody else. It's something that isn't really for my situation because I've been casting my net for days. I've been casting my net for months. I've been casting my net for years and there's nothing there. There's no harvest. There's no resurrecting that marriage. There's no turning around that child. There's no fixing that neighborhood. But today Jesus says, Put that net down again. And he's looking for some saints who will say, because you say so. Because you say so. Because you say so. My marriage is still trouble and I haven't caught a thing, but because you say so. My children are still painfully troubled. But because you say so. My neighborhood is still unsafe, but because you say so. My environment is still polluted, but because you say so. My world is still crazy. With violence and fear and terror. But because you say so. I'll let my net down again. What is it that allows people in the face of repeated disappointment and frustration to try again? I want to suggest two things that perhaps come out of this passage that might be helpful to us. The first of which is that I discern that these disciples who are pretty wild guys. Peter, James, and John, they're a wild bunch. I mean, really, you don't even think about these guys. These are not angels, right? 
I mean, these are show enough dudes. Right? I mean, James and John, they're supposed to be evangelized in a village. They get mad with the people because the people don't hear the word, right? They didn't take their tracks, right? Or, right? Didn't invite them in. They get mad with them, and they want to call down uh, fire on the village. I mean, I, I mean I, uh, that is not the way to make seekers, you know, come, come to faith. That's just not the way to do it, right? You don't burn their village down. Because they don't get the message the first time through, right? And, and my man Peter, Peter, that boy could sell wolf tickets like nobody's business. I don't care what the rest of these dudes do. Let me tell you, when they roll up in here, Jesus, I'm going to stand by you, man. I'm going to be, get your back, brother. I'm going to stand in the gap. Man, they're going to have to come over me to get you. They're pieces of work. But these pieces of work had a few things really going for them. One of which was that they spent time with Jesus. There's something about being in the presence of Jesus that changes you. Somebody say presence. Presence, presence. They spent time with Jesus. And that's really clearer from the Gospel of Luke than it is from the other Gospels because Luke especially makes it clear to us that James and John and Peter knew Jesus even before this particular passage. He was not some stranger to them. They had watched him. They would listened to him. And they'd come to the conclusion that he was saying something worth listening to. He was displaying a love worth relating to. And he was on a mission worth working for. They already had a sense that he was more than a carpenter. And this came out of the fact that they knew something about the him that they were involved with. It matters when Jesus is more than a distant memory from childhood and church school. It matters when Jesus is more than the 911 dispatcher that I call when I got an emergency. It matters when Jesus is more than the tech support person I speak to. When my life machine keeps giving me an error code. It matters when Jesus is more than a Layla Hathaway stand-in singing softly in my ear. Although I never hear from you, still it's nice to know you used to love me so when your life was low. In the letter to his friends, the hymn writer Wendell Loveless uh, related this story of a speaker from a um, another country who came to the United States. Anybody remember when phone booths were around? Phone booths, amen. Uh, you didn't have to say it that loud. I wasn't trying to throw you under the bus or anything, right? Uh, right? Uh, but you remember phone booths, you know, those things you used to go into. Superman used to change in. You know, phone booths, right? Phone booths, right? Uh, so it, 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 this poor visitor is struggling in a phone booth trying to figure out what to do. It's a little dark outside. They've got to look up a number in a directory. They've got to punch the numbers in. And it's all very difficult because the light is so low. And the poor visitor is struggling. They're struggling. They're struggling. And finally, a passerby comes and says, sir, sir, I just want to let you know that you have to close the door if you want the light to come on. You've you got to close the door. You've you got to shut the rest of this here out if you want the light to come on. 
And I think the problem for so many of us is that we haven't learned how to close some doors in our lives. Ah, we got to close the door on the laptop. Got to close the door on the smartphone and the Xbox and the playoff game and my primetime series and my talk show and my spreadsheet and my telephone. I got to close the door so I can let the light of God come on. Get into a quiet place and pray and meditate and open my heart. Get into a place where I can have a little talk with Jesus. And in that space, my darkened world of disappointments and trials can become illuminated. The light comes on. In that place, I can enter into communion with God, sense his presence, and be assured of his provision. The light comes on. In that place I can be alone and in that space that Jesus explored time and again. I mean the Son of God said I got to get away from the crowd sometimes. Got to pull away even from Peter, James, and John and get into a place where I can talk. I got to step out of the realm of those who are sick and in need and just go to the source and there get the light turned on. Get the light turned on. And you're going to have to find out how in your life you can close doors regularly, consistently, so that God's light can really come on. That includes not only spending time with God. That really means spending time with the body of Christ, too. Some of us have this thing, oh, I love Jesus, but I can't deal with the church. And I understand the church is rough. church is rough. I love to tell that story about the cardinal. The king calls the cardinal in and says to him, Cardinal, I want you to do so-and-so. And the cardinal says, uh, oh, your highness, I can't do that. It's illegal. It's immoral. It's unethical. The king says, you don't understand, cardinal. If you don't do what I ask you to do, I'm going to destroy you and I'm going to destroy the church. In which the cardinal chuckles and says, oh, your highness, those of us who call ourselves Christians have been trying to destroy the church for 2,000 years. We haven't done it, and neither will you. The church can be rough, but it's the only church Jesus has. And at its best, I'll tell you what a young gang leader told me one time. I I was sitting out talking, he said, man, look, let me tell you what what I've noticed about the church. He said, y'all think I don't pay any attention. People think I don't care about spiritual things. Very successful young guy. He was in his early 20s had computerized and encrypted in the 1990s, right? Computerized and encrypted his $6 million trade in Coke and diesel. And he says, you know, people think I don't pay any attention to what's going on. What do I do? He says, I go to church more frequently than some of your members. He said, I sit in the back and I just watch what's going on. He said, let me tell you what I've observed. He says, preacher, let me just tell you, I love stuff. I love bling. I love gold. It makes me feel like I'm important and significant. It makes me feel like I am somebody. He says, let me tell you, I've been in church a lot, and I think I see some people who like bling. See, it may not be my bling, but it's their bling. It's cars, it's houses, it's... He says, I just listen to their testimonies. 
I look at what's important to them. And I sometimes roll up on people for whom things are really important. He says, I want you to know that uh, this thing around women, I love women. I love sex. He said, but some of the dudes in your church, man, they could teach me stuff about running women I never knew. And then he says, you know what? I know what I do is wrong. But I convince myself that it's all right because I am selling people a hit to make them feel better about miserable lives. He says, you know what a whole lot of I see going on Sunday morning is people getting a hit so they can feel better about miserable lives. This last question to me was, why should I be on the bottom of your hustle when I can be on the top of my own? And my answer to him was, Selvin, everything that you said is sometimes true. Let me tell you what happens when the church acts like the church. When the church acts like the church, Roman empires fall and get turned upside down. When the church acts like the church, slavery, institutions like slavery that have been around since recorded history get overturned. When the church acts like the church, God will turn a nation and tear it in path until it sets an impoverished and enslaved people free. When the church Act like the church. Women discover that suddenly there's space for them in the corridors of power and their rights are restored. When the church acts like the church, those who've lost hope discover that there's a place where somebody knows my name and sees in me what I don't see in myself. When the church acts like the church. So the challenge challenge is for us to spend time in the presence of God and not lose sight of that mission on which we have been called, to renew ourselves with that spiritual oxygen that allows us to run, and like Peter, even in the face of frustration, to declare, because you say so, I'll do it. There's a second thing. Presence is one. Everybody say presence. The second one is priority. Everybody say priority. Priority, 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 priority. Presence is necessary, but not sufficient. It's good to be here. It's good to be in the presence of Jesus. But you also have to attach a real priority to the things of God. Uh, The same scripture here might well be Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. And those of you who have your Bibles, you might turn there. But it's a familiar one. It simply says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Now, Peter, James, and John had already shown a willingness to put the priorities of the kingdom first. First of all, they had lent Jesus their boat, right? They could have been out fishing then. It was daytime. There's different kinds of fish, but you can fish then. But they put that business aside so that they could come alongside the mission, the ministry, the program of Jesus. And there's that kind of priority setting that you and I must constantly be engaged in. Because we're just like them. We've got businesses to run and employees to be compensated, fish to be caught, nets to be mended, families to look after, friends to spend time with, books to be read, bills to be paid, and life to be lived. But we have to make it clear to ourselves and to God, your business is my priority. And I do that, and I commend that to you, 
Because what I have learned over the years is that if you will take care of God's business, God will take care of yours. And nobody can take care of your business like God can take care of your business. God can open doors you didn't know existed. God can bring along resources you didn't know were there. God can bring up people you've never met. God can establish opportunities you couldn't dream of. And I've seen it over, 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 and I've seen it over again. I saw it a few years ago, a number of years ago, when we were asked to take our first trip, second trip actually, to the continent of Africa. And, and, and over the last 20 years, we have traveled in and out of war zones. My wife has been in and out of Sudan about 25 times. We've traveled to all kinds of places at war. And it isn't because we are adrenaline junkies. It's not because we're looking for a thrill. Not because I want to have a nice testimony to give. In almost all cases, didn't plan it. None of us planned it that way. It was just trying to respond to the need of people saying, come on over and help us. So 1991, my father in ministry has just established as a bishop, says, I want you and Gloria to come over and help us do a, 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 a workshop in, uh, I want you to help us do a uh, medical mission in uh, Cote d'Ivoire, Ivory Coast. Uh, this is immediately after the Liberian War has taken off. I've been there the year before. Refugees are pouring into Ivory Coast. And so we said, well, we're going to go. We're going to try to be a blessing to the refugees, try to be a blessing to the shanty towns, try to be a blessing to the people over in Vridi Day. See if we can make a difference. And so we start doing all the things that we need to do. And we're doing it because we really believe God said so. We didn't plan on the fact that the Gulf War would start and people would start canceling their travel plans. We didn't plan on the fact that we'd be getting the reports back about Clutches of American tourists in European airports, uh, literally identifiable because everybody else was moving away from them in case the terrorists broke in. They didn't want to get caught in the crossfire. Uh, we didn't plan on the family members who called up and said, well, wait a minute. You've got a church to start and you've got young children. Why are you going? I'm going because Jesus said so. Uh, didn't plan on the fact that the nurse who was originally going to go with us at the last minute I had a child who developed appendicitis and couldn't go. It didn't plan on the fact that all the connections that we tried to work at Boston University and Harvard and Tufts didn't come up with the information that we needed or give us the advice that we needed to know how to set this clinic up. Didn't plan on the fact that they were uh, going to, you know, not come up with our medical license to practice in Ivory Coast until 12 hours before we got on the plane. Why are you going? Because Jesus said so. And we got on the plane, didn't know who we were going to contact, what we were going to do, just here because Jesus said so. And to my amazement, behind me is a guy who's the librarian at the USAID office in Abidjan, who sees my guide and asks me, what are you doing? Also, it turns out he's from New England and is going to retire to Rhode Island. And we get a conversation going and he says, look me up when you get to Abidjan. I didn't know that when we got to Abidjan, it would take us a couple days to find him. And then he would say, well, I want you to go over to the embassy and meet the head doctor who is my friend. I may think he might be able to help you. Didn't plan on the fact that when I got to the embassy, the head doctor was on his way out for a 10-day trip to Mali. 
Didn't plan on the fact that three hours before the clinic had to be set up, I'm sitting in the embassy with my head in my hands along with Gloria trying to figure out, what are we going to do? Where's the medicine? Where are the instruction sheets that we need in the languages that we need? But I also didn't plan on the fact that there was a woman named Essie Ames, a Christian who was a nurse in that embassy, who for six months had been praying, Lord, give me an opportunity to bless the people of Ivory Coast with the knowledge that I have. And when we told her why she was there, broke into a shout and began to do everything that we needed. In 30 minutes, Essie did what BU, Harvard, and Tufts couldn't. In 30 minutes, Essie gave us all the instructions we needed in all the languages we needed. In 30 minutes, Essie took us across the street to the pharmacy, bought all our medications at wholesale cost. In 30 minutes, Essie put us in a cab and sent us to start it. And the Lord said to me clearly, Ray, I love your connections, but I don't need them. You've got to trust me. And you've got to get to the point that because I say so. No matter how long the list of frustrations, no matter how many times it didn't work before, no matter how many years I've been trying to make this situation, because I say so, you'll do it. There's a critical principle here that I've had to learn and relearn, as all of us must. Reminds me of a story about a father who was awakened by a smoke detector in his basement. It says he woke his wife and quickly went to their children's bedroom, woke them up, started heading for the door through the smoke, which was getting quite heavy. The father was carrying his one-and-a-half-year-old daughter in one arm and held the hand of his four-year-old son with the other. But there was another son who was so scared and unsure of what had happened that he pulled away from his father and ran to what he thought was a place of safety, a corner of his bedroom where his favorite stuffed toys were kept. Father got outside, called to his son who appeared at the bedroom window crying and calling for help. Father called to him and told him to jump, but the boy yelled in reply, I can't see you. And the father called back with a reassuring message, son, that's all right, because I can see you. I can see you. Couldn't see God in all of those disappointments things that had fallen through, but God keeps saying, I can see you. I see you. I see your broken heart. I see your fear that if I put myself on the line one more time, I will just be disappointed. I see you. 
I see your pain. I see your disappointment. I see your struggle. I see your challenge. I see all of that. And I'm still telling you, jump, because I'll catch you. 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 I mean it when I say so. I mean it when I tell you that no weapon formed against you is going to prosper. I say so. I mean it when I tell you that you are above and not beneath. I say so. I mean it when I say that you're the light of the world, the salt of the earth. I say so. I mean it when I say that there is the one who is in you is greater than the one that is in the world. I say so. I mean it. 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 No matter how many times you've cast that net before and nothing has come up, I'm telling you, cast it again. I'm saying so. I see you. I see you. I see you. I see you. And I've never taken my eye off you. I promise never to leave you nor forsake you. I see you. I told you that there was no trial or temptation you were going through that is not common to human experience. But I am faithful. I will not allow you to be tried beyond your capability. When it gets too tough, I'll make a way out. I see you. I haven't forgotten about you. I haven't forgotten my gifts. I haven't forgotten my calling. I haven't forgotten that I saved you. I haven't forgotten that I poured out my blood for you. I haven't forgotten that I knew you before you were made in your mother's womb. I haven't forgotten that you were fearfully and wonderfully made. I haven't forgotten that you're an heir of God and a joint heir with Christ. I see you. You're mine. And if you can just get to the point... Of doing it because I say so. Trusting me. Knowing that I see you, even if you can't see me. You can do extraordinary things in your life. Nineteen ninety. My city, Boston, like cities all across the country, was reeling in pain. We had what was for us an extraordinary number of homicides. And for the most part, it seemed that much of what the church was doing, rightly so, was helping grieving families. Burying dead young people. On the night of May 14th, 1992, we were holding one of those funerals like we usually do. 400 mourners packed into a church. People terribly broken. What's really terrible about this situation was that this young guy 
had just literally gotten caught in the crossfire. He was just at a party. Some of his friends who were part of the Vamp Hill Kings were beefing with another group from a development called Academy Homes. Somebody got into a fight over nothing, over nothing. They shot through the window. Hit this boy in the head. Killed him. Man was trying to get his life together. Had a young daughter. Just wanted to be a decent father. So the church opens its doors and has the funeral. In the middle of the funeral, a kid walks in by the name of Jerome and sits down. Some of the guys who were there, who were friends of the fellow who had been killed, knew that Jerome was part of a gang affiliated with the gang responsible for Bobby's death. They assumed that this was the ultimate sign of disrespect. You guys are such chumps and wusses. Just roll right up in this funeral. I'll tell you what a bunch of, you know. What they didn't know was that actually Jerome came because he and Bobby used to play basketball together and he wanted to just pay respects. But part of the difficulty was that they were angry and they were guilty because they knew Bobby had nothing to do with this fight. So they went after Jerome. In the service. Chased him around the church, shot a gun off, stampeded the mourners. It was a small church. There was only one door to go to. It was just the grace of God that nobody got killed in the stampede. So on my way home from Bible study, when I heard the news, turned my car around, went back to the church. Knew the pastor, and we were all sitting there. I mean, we're just in shock. I mean, they do that stuff in Chicago, maybe in L.A. They don't do this in Boston. (laughs) Then the Lord started saying all kinds of weird stuff. He spoke through the mouth of one of the preachers who said, you know what? I think God may be saying if the church doesn't take its message to the streets... The streets may bring their message to the church. Had some young people come and say, we heard that you Christians actually believe that when somebody offends you, you ought to go to them. You don't just write a pastoral epistle and get on the news. We heard you actually go to the person who's offended you and try to work it out. Is that true? Is that true? Is that true? Is it true what we've heard about you people who call yourselves Christians? Is that true? Is that true? Before it was over, in spite of all the frustration of burials and deaths, one after another, we heard God saying, you better let that net down one more time. And we found ourselves standing in a parking lot, talking to guys on one side of the battle, who to our amazement just wanted somebody to know that this is not the way they had ever planned for it to go down, who were willing to admit that they were lost and couldn't figure a way out of this cycle of violence. 
Before it was all over, we found ourselves standing in front of a Chinese restaurant on Bowdoin Avenue in Geneva, uh, uh, Bowdoin Avenue in, in, in uh, Dorchester, talking to the other group who said, we have a plan for how we can bring about peace. If we just kill three people on the other side, we'll be even and then we'll call the truce. What do you think of that, Pastor? I hadn't quite been prepared for this in divinity school, so I had to think back for a moment. (laughs) And over the course of about 30 or 45 minutes, along with a number of other people, we're able to get these young men to consider that if we don't stop it here and now, it'll never stop. It was the start of a process in which we saw in Boston the greatest decrease in violent crime of any city in the nation. It was a start of a process in which for 30 months we went without any juvenile homicides at all. Why am I telling you this? Because I've learned that often the only thing that stands between us and our breakthrough is our own sense of disappointment. The only thing that stands between us and our breakthrough is our sense I've been fishing all night and it's time to give up. The only thing that stands between us and what God wants to do is our unwillingness to say to Jesus, because you say so, I'll do it. I want to ask you to stand.